when I was a little baby, uh, apparently I got sick. And my grandmother, who'd grown up in Tsarist Russia, uh, came over to help my mom out. And my mom was very upset because apparently I was very sick. I don't know. But anyway, the story was I was very sick. And my mother was kind of frantic. And my grandmother said to her, and my mother told me this later, Beatrice, you're a grown woman. You can't carry on this way. Babies die all the time. You just can't carry on this way. So, you know, that is such a different attitude. I mean, most people would think that 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 is just the craziest thing to say, you know, but that is what my grandmother from Tsarist Russia was telling my mother. And it was from her personal experience. I mean, she left Tsarist Russia as a, a teenager. But what, so it wasn't her experience of having children die in Tsarist Russia, but her her experience of what happened to her family, other siblings, other people's families, et cetera. How does that, how does that connect to, um, what what were we talking about before? We're talking about degrowth. The idea that we need less and less of everything. Yeah. That's right. We don't need all this energy. We don't need, you know, warm houses. We don't need this we don't need that right but you probably hear a lot of that in vermont oh yeah oh yeah yeah it's like that ef schumacher small is beautiful um lifestyle we have a lot of that here in the hudson valley too i feel like there's these little enclaves uh enclaves of privilege as some people call them uh where sort of more affluent people can kind of act like luddites and and play a little fantasy that they can get away with uh with doing less and and consuming less and that somehow that's going to save the world uh mary antoinette made a little village for herself where she could be a milkmaid <laughs> is that true that's so I funny think so. if you look up for sign i think she made a little village for herself that that makes sense it's so funny Perfect. The, the elites they act the same way now they it's the same thing where they they all want to return to the a more pure form of existence, I guess. And they're afraid of technology. Well, I'm looking, what I'm talking about is that, you know, if you want to talk about a pure form of existence without technology, my grandmother was living it. Yeah, she, right. <laughs> yeah. That is what was going on. I mean, uh, she was living in, um, in an era where, well, it was like if you were watching Fiddler on the Roof, except that you, instead of seeing uh, a man walking along with his cart to carry milk, that would be the only way milk was carried. You didn't have milk trucks. Yeah, right. Yeah, but think, think about how mindful she could be without the distractions of social media and Facebook, <laughs> and she could just concentrate on what you know, her surroundings and you know, her work every day and like being connected to the earth. I think she was in right relationship with. with no, uh, she wasn't. <laughs> she didn't enjoy it at all. That's why she left. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's what's so funny about these the modern uh, environmental movement is. It's nice when you can control these things and say, you know what? Today I want to sort of reenact the old times and you know pretend that you know, were living in a less technological era. Era, but then when things go wrong and you have to go to the hospital or you you know need 
so, you know, whatever service it is that requires modern technology that we just take for granted, you want to be able to go back to that at any time you want. Exactly. Exactly. I was listening to a lecture a while, a while back where a uh, uh, professor of economics said that he started his economics classes by telling his kids that he could magically transport them back to the 1890s in America and they would be very rich. They would be among the richest people in America. And uh, he said, you know, you'll have a house, you'll have uh, wonderful horses and carriages, uh, you'll have servants, uh, you won't have electricity, you won't have uh, vaccinations except smallpox, you won't have uh, antibiotics, you won't have uh, uh, cars, you won't be able to travel very well except you will be in the class that makes the grand tour of Europe once in your, in your late uh, teens, early 20s, because that's part of what you're supposed to do, you go on, you know. And he said, how many people want to sign up? Yeah, right. <laughs> Nobody, if you actually have to live it. Right. It's fun. It'd be fun for a day, but yeah. After that, yeah. I yeah. mean, right now, actually, our uh, our hot water our hot water went out, and so we've sort of been <laughs> living it for I don't know five days now or so. so sort of boiling water on the stove just to take warm baths, and it does. It, it sucks. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it definitely does. I it's mean, real quick. if people want to experience that sort of thing, I mean, I, when I was younger, uh, George and I uh, used to go like a backpacking sometimes. I mean, and, and, and you can experience a lot that way. You can really see what it's like. But of course, you don't have any other obligations. Mm. What I'm trying to say is I wasn't trying to write a book, uh, go to a job, uh, raise kids, go to the grocery store. I mean, I, we spend days getting it together, putting it in the backpack, you know, figuring out we what food we needed. And this was only like for two day trips. Yeah, yeah. trips. I mean, I'm not talking about a backcountry explore explorations, but uh, and uh, and also the the world the places we went were what you might call very gentle wildernesses. I mean, we weren't really, you know. It was no alpine stuff going on. I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I'm just trying to say that people sometimes forget what they have, or maybe somehow or other there's a feeling that nobody, we don't deserve to live this way. And mm. yes, we don't deserve to live this way, and other people don't deserve to live as badly as, as the world is set up for them. And no, nobody is... Uh, nobody is born into a fair world hmm. the the question is is if you happen to have a life that includes antibiotics and adequate food and, and a warm house is this some kind of sin right and i i don't think it is <laughs> i don't think it is i really don't think it everyone is. should have those things well that's where i mean if you want to get political that's the political atmosphere these days is guilt politics right this this talk of like privilege about feeling bad for your privilege especially on the left you know i think that's really what the left has uh, embraced this rhetoric of privilege and guilt and shame about the good things that we have built in our society despite the inequalities and despite you know uh, you know, capitalism is not the, obviously not the best system, and we're seeing all of the flaws in it coming to a head um, at the moment. But that doesn't mean that, like, we haven't, you know, in spite of that, created a lot of uh, prosperity for a lot of people, and we should 
yeah. we shouldn't just get rid of that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and and I think what's uh, attracted us to a lot of your work and other people that uh, you talk to is that uh, in order to bring everyone up to a good level of prosperity and comfort and health, we're going to need to produce and consume more energy. Yes. Yeah. All this stuff takes energy. And then you start asking, okay, well, what's the solution? How do we, you know, there, there's all these climate change things going around and there's pollution, you know, frontline communities breathe in a lot of fossil fuel fumes and whatnot. Uh, so what's the best way? And what are the best, what are the trade-offs that we have to make in order to provide reliable, abundant, cheap energy for everybody so that we can all have abundance? And uh, the answer is nuclear. Yeah. Oh, I totally agree with that. <laughs> yeah. As you can guess. We're talking to Meredith Anglin today, um, and she's an author and energy consultant. Uh, she headed projects that lowered pollution and increased reliability on the electric grid. She, uh, her work included pollution control for nitrogen oxides in gas-fired combustion turbines and corrosion control in geothermal and nuclear systems. Uh, she was one of the first women to be a project manager at the Electric Power Research Institute. She led power, uh, projects in renewable and nuclear energy. Uh, and you, read, you wrote a book that's uh, great that I've read called Shorting the Grid, The Hidden Fragility of Our Electric Grid. And it's an expose of the insider ruled practices of the deregulated areas of the United States electric grid. And this isn't in your bio, but um, sounds like uh, what pushed you into writing that book, a lot of the experience that pushed you into it was your experience with uh, Vermont Yankee nuclear plant out there. Well, it was kind of a complicated thing that I, I, I Okay, I was supporting Vermont Yankee nuclear plant. So one of the things I decided to do to support it was to start a blog called Yes, Vermont Yankee. Well, as I'm writing this blog, of course, I'm trying to keep track of anything that happens that's affecting Vermont Yankee or its ability to continue and so forth. So every now and again, we get these, these things happening where, which are uh, kind of, I can't figure them out. Okay, I mean, so, an example in the book, and 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 I and it is a good example. Is one day I um, I read a headline, and the headline said, "Vermont Yankee not allowed to delist from forward capacity auction." I'm like, oh, okay. I know what capacity is. I know about capacity factors. I know what an auction is. I delist must be to somehow drop out of the auction. What is this sense about? <laughs> I mean, it didn't make any sense to me. So I, I did some research and I, I, I wrote some stuff about it. And, uh, and, and after that, I began to kind of understand some of those headlines more. So I wrote more about it. So the thing is that somebody was reading my blog and he was involved in the consumer liaison group of the grid operator, ISO New England. And, um, so he said, you know, Meredith, why don't you begin coming to the consumer liaison group meetings and maybe uh, run for the uh, coordinating committee? Because you're already doing this. I'm reading your blog. I said, 
oh, okay, I'll, I guess so. And this so, committee, this committee was for all of New England or just for Vermont? It's all from New England. Uh, okay. In December, it would meet in Boston. And the other three times, it would meet in, well, two states, and then once in, in, in a rather central location in Massachusetts. And then it would go like Rhode Island and Vermont this year, Connecticut, uh, and May next year, uh, so you have covered the six states in the ISO New England uh, uh, list, grid operator area. And for people listening, I just learned, I just like had to learn this myself because I, I hear you talking about ISOs. Um, and ISOs basically are just giant conglomerates of uh, how electricity, uh, the electric grid is sort of operated and managed in regions of the country, right? Is that a good that's way right, to right. describe I, that? Yes, that's right. I usually call them RTOs, regional transmission organizations, because the uh, legislation that set them up, I believe, called them regional transmission organizations, but then they're also called ISOs, independent system operators. And, and, and the ISOs operate um, the system. That is, they have the big uh, uh, control room with the balancing authority that turns electricity on and off, uh, when uh, um, turns power plants on and off mm. as demand on the grid goes up and down. You see, one of the things that every, every electrical grid has to deal with is that demand changes during the day and over the seasons. Hmm. And so there has to be some, and, and demand and uh, resources, that is electricity versus users, electricity generators versus users have to be very, very carefully balanced all the time. If they get out of balance even a little bit, then for example, the frequency uh, begins to drop. Now in Texas, the whole grid almost went down. And I believe the frequency had dropped at that point from 60 cycles per second to 59.96 or 95. I mean, so this is what I'm talking about. It has to be very closely balanced. So what you're saying is that um, if the demand goes out of what is uh, usually uh, predicted for or sort of a um, what it's planned for, uh, that, that things can go awry, right? So the, like behind the scenes, there's sort of like these big centrally planned and operated things that we don't even really think about, right? And, right, and, we don't. And, no, and if, if, if it goes differently than, than expected it, to too much of a degree, that's when chaos ensues, that's right. right? That's right. And it can be for too much demand, but actually one of the other thing is not enough supply. I mean, one of the things that was going on in Texas is that uh, natural gas, well, the wind died down and Texas can have up to, uh, I, I, I should have the slide in front of me, but uh, up to 40 uh, megawatts, uh, 40 gigawatts of wind, something huge, mm. and it died down to like zero. Okay, mm. well, the wind does this. The wind, and, and Texas was ready for that in the sense that they had natural gas plants to turn on. Mm. Well, the problem was that natural gas is delivered just in time. That mm. is, you don't store natural gas at the power plant. You've got mm. a pipeline. The mm. pipeline brings it to the power plant. The power plant burns it. Now, since this is all happening in real time, and meanwhile, the wind 
uh, goes on and off when it wants to. So you have one thing that's intermittent and the other thing that is just in time. Right. And if you have a grid that's too dependent on that kind of thing, it's a fragile grid right. because things can, can go bad. And they did in Texas and they did in, in New England a couple of years ago, but we avoided having a, uh, uh, a problem like Texas because of the, the, I, the fact that our grid operator had planned ahead with what was called the winter reliability projects. Hmm. And what that meant is the grid operator paid for natural gas power plants to have oil on site. So they're usually what's called dual fuel. They can burn either natural gas or oil. And so they had oil uh, that they could burn when they couldn't get natural gas. And, and which again, I, 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 let me see if I can organize this better. Why couldn't a plant get natural gas? There are a series of reasons, okay? And each of them shows a different aspect of the frailty. So here's the, the first reason, is that sometimes there are problems on the line. This happened in Texas. You know, there were freezings on the line, there, there, there were valves that froze and so forth. Okay, so when you have just-in-time delivery, it's a vulnerable situation, you know? Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing is that the gas availability is determined by the size of the pipeline. You could discover the hugest mm. gas field next door and you can't get more through the pipeline. Right. So if you have a tiny skinny little pipe, but all this gas, right. then you're still gonna have to, or if you have one lane of traffic, yeah. you're still gonna have to wait for one car at a time to go through. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's a great analogy, by the way. I should use it if I run another book. <laughs> <laughs> but then like pe it. people will argue and say, well, we don't want multi-lane, you know, yeah. they hate the multi-lane traffic, but yeah. No. Need a traffic diet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, um, so now let's let's look at that pipeline. During a cold snap in an area where natural gas is used both for power plants and to heat houses. The houses generally have priority. Mm. They may have priority because they have priority because that's the rules. And they may have priority because natural gas plants, especially in RTO areas, want uh, to bid in low so they'll be chosen, which means that they don't make firm contracts with the gas pipelines. They make interruptible contracts with the gas pipelines. So the gas pipelines, if they're low on gas, they'll say to the power plant, you remember your contract? I'm not sending you any right now. I'm sorry, I just can't. It's an interruptible contract. You mm -hmm. save money for most of the year with it. Now you're not getting gas. So uh, that's one of the things. Okay, so we have the interruptible as opposed to firm contracts. Though, of course, I'm not sure that the pipeline would make up to its maximum. I, I mean, I'm not a pipeline operator, but up to its maximum in firm contracts, because after all, houses, when it's really cold out, houses are going to burn what they're going to burn. Mm, they're yeah. not going to say, oh, well, I think I'll, uh, you know. I won't, I won't, I won't heat it today. I mean, it's, it's 20 right. below. So why do I, why do I want to heat it? Or, you know, or I'll turn it off for a couple hours. Let's see how it goes. You know, right, I, yeah. you're talking about people that have like the natural gas hooked up to their house. Yeah, exactly. Right. And they, um, 
they definitely use a lot more natural gas in very, very cold weather. And then the pipeline, pipeline can't deliver to the power plant. Yeah, the third thing is that in the days before deregulation, utilities were soup to nuts. That is, they were from the, from the power plant to your house and to the bill to you, okay? They, they were responsible for all of it. The buck stopped with them if you didn't get power. Whether they didn't get power because uh, th there was no power available or because a tree went down and on a line, the, the buck stopped with them, they were supposed to fix it. And if they didn't fix it, if, they, if their utility regulator, the Public Utilities Commission, saw them as having too many outages, they would be fined. And they didn't like that because that hit their rate of return. It hit them where they didn't want to be hit in the pocketbook. Mm. So that was what happened in those days. Nowadays, the power plants are what's called merchant generators. That is, they're selling their power, their merchants. They have no obligation to any particular customer. And um, now, you know, if they've made an obligation for some reason, they've made a power purchase agreement, they go offline, then they, they have a problem. But if they're just selling into the, the uh, auctions run by the uh, independent system operator, they can't sell because they don't have gas or because the gas is too expensive. If, they would, if it's too expensive, they would lose money by selling it because they wouldn't be able to be paid as much as the, the gas would cost them. They can just go offline. They're just merchants. Nobody can tell a merchant, you have to supply even at a loss. A merchant is not an integrated utility with, with uh, obligations to its public utility commission and to its customer base. Mm. A merchant generator is not those things. And so there are three different reasons from the gas is too expensive to the gas is not available because the houses are using it to the gas lines have a problem why the, um, the gas might not be there for the uh, gas-fired power plants. But, but Meredith, what about all the people in Texas? Texas is a very sunny place. What about all the people in Texas that have put solar panels on their houses and have a little Tesla battery in their basement? Like, what, you know, shouldn't that offset all the, uh, the problems you're talking about? Well, first of all, they're not that, well, no. First of all, I have a friend who, he doesn't have a battery in his basement. I think the battery in the basement is actually much less common than mm. you think it is. And, it turns out that if you have solar panels, I didn't really know this until I was talking to him, you may or may not have the ability to island your house. Now, if you're in a net metered situation, that is you sell to the grid at your excess power, your whole system depends on the grid being there for you. Because if, the, if you don't have power, the grid supplies it. If you are generating more power than you're using, you send it to the grid. And if the grid isn't there, the whole thing doesn't work. So my friend in Texas has a, a fair number of, of, of solar panels on his roof. And he, he couldn't get a, a little, any electricity from them um, because he, he wasn't set up to have his house be islanded. And I mean, I really, this was, you know, everything, I, I worked so hard at trying to learn all the ins and outs of these things, but things still come along and go like, whoa, really? 
Well, I guess that would be true with net metering, you know, I mean, <laughs> um, but uh, Tesla batteries can keep you going for a while. But when you get right down to it, you'd have to have a really big system to get through a bunch of really cold days, especially if it's overcast. I mean, if you look at a power outage because a tree went down and the crews are on their way, and you're going to have power restored in an hour and a half, you could have a battery that you don't notice it, perhaps. Yeah. But if you're going to have insufficient generation on the grid because the gas plants are going offline and, and, and the frequency on the grid is dropping and nobody's going to be back on for, you're, you're not going to be back on for 48 hours, it's going to be a lot harder to have a battery that keeps you going through that. It, 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 it's, it's pretty much, uh, I don't want to say not feasible, because uh, a lot of people, when they're thinking about these things, say, we can do it. There's just, it's just more expensive. We just are going yeah. to pay the cost. Mm. And It's a lot of lithium. Yeah, it's a lot of lithium. And it's a lot of, uh, a lot of concern, too. I mean, you know, some of these battery banks have caught fire. I'm not saying that no other kind of energy situation ever caught fire, but I mean, you're adding a new kind of risk. You're adding yeah. a, a new kind of risk to the whole thing. I don't remember the exact thing, but you had in your book something about like all the battery storage in the world, if it was relied, if, if everything like went down and all the battery storage in all the world, it could only keep the world going for like five minutes or something. Yeah, like that. yeah. I, it's in my book about the battery section. I guess I could look it up, but yeah, that's that's true. And, and, and you know, the, one of the things is that batteries are used in a way that's kind of misleading. Uh, what I'm talking about is, at least in many RTO areas, there's something that goes on in the summer called beating the peak. And that means that you, you're going to store energy in your battery and, 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 and use it during peak times of energy. And, 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 and then, you know, our, our local power company, Green Mountain Power, it often advertises how much money it saved by beating the peak because it has a lot of homes with batteries. And when it thinks a peak is coming and when it has its uh, predictors. It has this group that is making predictions of exactly when that peak hour is going to be. And it begins telling the homes or ordering that through the system to, to use the batteries instead of using grid power, lower its demand on the grid, and beat the peak. Now, why is it doing all that? It's doing that to save money or to be blunt about it, to transfer expenses to other utilities. Mm. When it has saved money beating the peak, that's money is being paid by another utility. The way this beating the peak thing goes is the rhetoric is all about how green it is. Okay. Right. But the actuality is that the grid operator uses the amount of electricity your utility draws during peak demand as an important part of how it assesses the cost of transmission lines to your utility. So if you beat the peak, if you don't use as much during that period of time, the cost of the transmission lines will be less to you and more to your neighbor. 
neighbor utility. So when you say utility, you're not talking about the ISO level. You're talking about like if you live in, I don't know, Manchester and your friend lives in, uh, so, I don't know, Great Barrington or something like that. You're saying that like your, your friend in the other town that goes with another is with another utility company there. The costs might be offset to them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. A, a utility is is like it has an area. It generally has an area where it delivers power. Now, there can sometimes, especially I think in Massachusetts, there can be more than one utility in an area and you can have a choice. But but mostly, you know, I live in the Green Mountain Power area. If I wanted to get you uh, energy from a different utility, it would be uh, very difficult. The, the idea is these different entities are assessed, their share of the transmission costs for the whole grid, depending on how much, depending on many factors, but a very important factor is how much they use during that peak hour. Yeah. You know, I can't fully under. I'm not fully uh, able to understand what you're talking about, but I think the general oh, gist. No. Is, well, I, think, <laughs> I hate this. Well, no, no. I'm gonna I'm gonna dumb everything down for myself and for the <laughs> listeners. But it sounds like uh, what what you're talking about is a lot of things that are presented as green or self-sufficient are actually not because you're not on an island because you're yeah. hooked up to a grid that's hooked up to other grids that's you know an ISO that's hooked up to other ISOs that imports and exports energy all the time. There's all these transactions happening that we have no idea about. And we can say, I mean, we'll talk about this later, but you can say to yourself, I live in a town that has declared itself a climate smart community <laughs> that, that uh, uses 100% renewable energy. And it's simply not true. Like you're hooked up to a grid where there's like an incomprehensible amount of transactions happening where like you can't possibly say that yeah. you're 100% renewable. And just to echo what, I mean, I feel the same way as Alex. I, I'm I'm taking all this in. And I think the, that the audience and the larger public out there feels the same way that it's a lot to understand. And it's okay if you don't understand it right away, let it wash over you and you'll get it, you know, cause it's complicated, but it's not, it's not rocket science. It's, it's, uh, it's electricity science. I don't, I don't know, but uh, <laughs> I think the electricity main... policy, excuse yeah. me, it's really policy more than right. something. Right. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. Well, w- the theme that I keep that keeps coming up for me in, in my head is uh, it's always a pass the buck kind of situation with oh, yes. the, with, with the green uh, energy, the, the green policies um, is that when you think you're actually doing something that's like good, when they tell you, Oh, this is good. This is beneficial. This is our green policy. Chances are there's a good chance that you're really just passing the buck on to the, the less fortunate or the less equipped uh, to handle the situation um, because we're not really addressing our needs uh, in a way that is um, logical. Uh, we're addressing our needs in a way that is, you know, uh, people just sort of covering their their bottom lines. The way you describe it, it, the way I keep hearing it is that it's, you know, all these, it's, it's, it's left up to the market to make the, the best decisions for the market. And the market's always gonna make the me- best decision for whoever controls the marketplace. And then what ends up happening is the, the people kind of miss out because utilities, things like utilities, things that people need don't ever run well when they're run by the market, right? Like things like health insurance, housing, these things 
never go down in price because of the market. They only go up in price uh, because they're not things that people can opt in and out of getting, like buying a new pair of sneakers or whatever, or going out to eat. They were there. There are things that people need, and whenever the market controls things that that people actually need, it actually makes the prices go up because the market doesn't um, conform itself to what people need. It conforms itself to whatever drives the highest profits. Well, I'm, I'm not sure that the prices always go up. I mean, housing prices have traditionally gone up, but if an area becomes, uh, uh, you know, the the big uh, um, the big employer in that area leaves, uh, housing prices do go down. And, yeah. And um, I think the thing is that certain kinds of things, and uh, in general, they are like uh, electricity and uh, municipal water, uh, are considered to be uh, something everybody needs. People don't have much choice about where they get it. I mean, you're not going to have four water companies with connections to your home or eight lines coming into your house, and you're going to choose the one that's uh, that's the best for you at that time, whichever right. is cheaper. And so they end up being regulated and that has really worked uh, pretty well. I mean, uh, one of the things I point out in my book uh, is that um, the theory was that uh, deregulating, having all these auctions uh, would save money for the consumer, but it turns out that uh, it doesn't. And I mean, I, I there were four, um, four studies uh, in my book, three or four that I quoted, and then another one came out uh, about four months after the book came out. And basically the RTO areas, the areas of the country that are run by these auctions have uh, higher prices than utilities at home, you know, for the end user than other areas do. And, uh, oh, just just to be clear, so uh, New England and New York are those deregulated or regulated? Oh yeah, totally deregulated. They're deregulated. Okay. New England, New York, California, um, a large swath of the Midwest. Okay, uh, regulated areas include the uh, southeastern part of the United States and uh, the northwest part of the United States, and uh, and also the. Um, a lot of the intermountain areas, uh, looking from uh, the west part of Texas up, heading north, uh, and then over to the west coast. Um, I have a map in the book of the RTO areas, and I think it's really interesting uh, because when um, I didn't know, when I was writing about Vermont Yankee, and I had to take a lot of time to figure out what not allowed to delist from the Ford capacity auction meant. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've discovered that this is really common. I mean, one of my friends, I went to college at University of Chicago and to graduate school there. And uh, one of my friends from back in those days, um, Liz continues to live in Chicago. Chicago is part of the PJM RTO. Uh, PJM means Pennsylvania, Jersey, Maryland, but it's obviously it's spread. Chicago is in Illinois, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. but it is mostly surrounded. It's a little like island of PJM surrounded by the Midwest utility, MISO. And I asked her how that affected her to be in PJM. She had no idea she was in PJM. Mm -hmm. I mean, most people don't know. Uh, they don't know if they're in an RTO area or not. 
they don't know whether their RTO has capacity auctions or not. Uh, Texas doesn't have capacity auctions, uh, which is not actually what caused the problems in Texas. I mean, I, I actually can't keep up with the MISO and PJM things because they have capacity auctions yeah, in yeah. some areas in some seasons. And, uh, and, 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 and the whole thing is way too, too complicated uh, for anybody to follow. And right, if they right. wanted to follow it, it would be really uh, close to impossible because there's all, too many rules, too many meetings. Sounds like an opportunity um, for bad actors to oh, uh, cause, cause havoc. And I think that's what, that's what I really want to talk to you about is like your experience in Vermont. Um, and we'll talk about Suncom in a, in a little bit, but uh, just the idea that like you have a nuclear plant, there are people that rely on it for employment. It's obviously a huge, huge uh, deal with like getting to, you know, climate goals about emissions, you know, this abundant source of power. Um, so how is it even like in your estimation, how is it even politically possible, much less technically possible to survive closing that thing? I mean, what, what like, I mean, obviously it's, it's like a lack of people's understanding about power. It's like you turn on the light switch, power comes on, you know, and you don't, you don't want uh, bad stuff to happen to the environment. So like, I think that's where most people are, but um, I mean, what, what makes it possible for, for politically possible to, to close that? Well, there's a lot of uh, people who really hate nuclear for kind of non-rational reasons. I mean, I, I, and, and I don't mean to put them down. I, I mean, you can't argue with some of them. Uh, Actually, and, Actually, you know what, before we talk about this, let's just set, set the stage really quick. So like based on everything that you said about the auctions, uh, you know, the reliability of the grid, what, what makes nuclear um, so, so good for kind of fixing these problems or making, making power more reliable for people? So and then, because we'll talk about like how nuclear is important or why it's important. And then we can talk about well, why, is it, why are people shutting down nuclear and why are people thinking that intermittent renewables are better? Okay, well... Nuclear is really uh, good for both uh, the stability of the grid and for the environment. And it's good for the stability of the grid because it has 18 months of fuel on site when it, go, when it has a refueling outage. And it has right. a refueling outage approximately every 18 months. Whereas with gas, and, they, don't, they don't store it on site. No, gas is not stored on site. Coal is stored on site, and that's good too. But, and I, I'm not trying to say, oh, coal's great. I'm just saying that um, the fact that it's stored on site is good. Uh, on the other hand, it is, uh, it's a tremendously um, resource intensive thing just moving the coal around. Uh, let, me, let me give you an example. Vermont Yankee, was a um, 600 megawatt uh, power plant. And when it had a new load of fuel delivered to it every 18 months, a semi truck brought the fuel. One semi. That's it. Yeah. Well. Now, if someone argues with me, maybe it was two semis, but it was every 18 months. <laughs> I believe it was one semi. What but if you hijack that one semi, then you have, you have a nuclear payload <laughs> you have a nuclear payload. It's not very safe. 
What? I'm just, I'm just joking. He's I'm just, just he's making one devil's of the things is that you know anything nuclear that goes along the road is generally uh, surrounded by cop cars. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it is not, it is not unguarded. And oh, who knew? That? <laughs> anyway, so the guy, the guy pulls up to get a sandwich, and like <laughs> the door of the truck is just open. <laughs> no, but in in general, so there it is. And every eighteen months, there's a semi, or maybe two semis. Okay. Now, I wanted my people that I was, uh, at that time I was doing a little more teaching at, uh, at an adult education program, and I wanted people to understand coal and to understand a lot about coal. So we actually arranged a trip to the Merrimack Station coal plant, which is in uh, New Hampshire, and it is about uh, 400 megawatts. And the Merrimack patient station coal plant, when it's operating full out, gets 40 coal cars, 100 tons of coal each per day. Wow. <laughs> Compared so to one every one, 18, 18 months. months. Yes. And that is a coal car, you understand. And a, 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 a rail car can hold a lot more than a semi can. I mean, as a matter of fact, in the piggybacking days, you put like two I don't know if you're still doing that, but you put two uh, uh, trailers for semis on a, a flatbed rail car to transport them easily. Uh, and, and, and then you took them off uh, at the end of the road. I, I, I really should look into all that, but piggybacking uh, was really important, at least for a while. And it just shows that uh, a rail car can take a lot more than a semi can. You know, it's good for the environment that you can hop on board and get a ride along the way. <laughs> so that's, that's just a, a, a benefit. I'm just kidding. Yeah, right. well, I, I'm not sure. You're just kidding. I, I don't know if... Uh, Some environmentalists probably has said that. But I have a, a, when I was working toward saving Vermont Yankee, I found... Uh, uh, the local libertarian group, Ethan Allen Institute, was very supportive of me. Hmm. And one of the reasons they awesome. were supportive was that John McClory, uh, the head of it, had been a nuclear engineer, okay, hmm. for a while, and then he went into politics. But then later on, you know, I got to know John, and later on, <laughs> I discovered that he had been at one point in his youth a hobo. He literally rode the rails. Wow. Hmm. And he had a he had a hobo name and oh, that's I mean, cool. It was really cool. <laughs> I didn't know that you get like a hobo name. That's that's pretty cool. Apparently he did. I think if I don't remember what it was it was something like, like uh, patches or something. No. <laughs> I should look it up, but he definitely had a hobo name. It was something like uh Carolina John or something. So that was <laughs> oh that's that's cool. That's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Like and, that. And uh, um, anyhow, so where were we? Where do we? We got off into the whole. Oh, so we so were, oh, we were talking about yeah, nuclear. Of, like it takes why? one truck every eighteen months. Right, right. So you have a lot of solidity in your fuel supply and running the power plant uh, in a nuclear plant. Okay, so that's really good. If it's cold weather and it's not Texas where they didn't make it, you know, uh, weather resistant, then the nuclear plant just keeps running. It's hot, it's cold, whatever, it's running. Right. Um, 
Right. So I guess the issue with, um, and just to contrast it against fossil fuel plants. So coal, like you said, it's incredibly resource intensive to get the fuel there. And then with gas, if there's a pipeline delivering the gas, the pipeline can freeze. Also, people don't really like pipelines uh, being you know, built. Like construction of new pipelines is incredibly contentious. Um, right? And then with- Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Totally. Okay. And, and you know, I mean- um, so that that's uh, one of one of the issues. The 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 other thing is that um, people aren't aware of baseload. The anti-nuclear people will say there is no such thing as baseload. That's your grandfather's grid, <laughs> but there is. And if you go uh, in my book, or if you go to uh, ISO New England or one of the other grid operators, and, and you see the chart of how the demand varies over the course of the day. You know, that at six in the morning, it begins, five in the morning, it begins ramping up from the nighttime because people are turning things on. And then it goes higher, and then maybe uh, there's solar, and, and then this demand goes down because people are, are using solar at their own uh, systems, and, and then it goes up again, then it goes down. So the question is, what is the demand? The question I have is, what is the demand at two in the morning? And on our grid, the demand at two in the morning tends to run between 10,000 and, I don't know, 12,000 uh megawatts okay. what does that compare to like the daytime like a quarter daytime or... it can run between 16 and twenty thousand megawatts okay so not that much less it's not it but the thing is, is what happens is that they say well there is no such thing as baseload but that's not true the, right. there are many many processes that go on all the time and mm in industry. I mean, you don't shut down your water plant and you don't shut down your, uh, you know, if you've got something making plastics, you don't just turn all the, the heaters off. And oh, I mean, but at night I turn off all the lights. I turn down the heat, you know, is that, is well, that enough? <laughs> well, if you, well, I do too, but what, <laughs> but what I'm saying is that if you believe that all you have to do is be a good person and then there'll be almost nothing there for baseload. There'll be nothing being used in the middle. Everyone of just needs to be a good person. Well, yeah, all joking, right. all joking aside, you know what I think of when you're talking about, you know, manufacturing plastics or running factories overnight. It's like if we cut out all that time that things are getting produced, then the then things will have less time to get produced and the cost of things will go up. So all the... I think when people hear about energy, they don't really think about it because it's they can't see it. It's like a sort of this ethereal thing. But what it what it turns into, what it makes manifest is that the price of goods ends up going up because, you know, everything requires energy to be made. And the less time we have to make it, if we can't do it at night, then we have a lot less time, especially in the winter. You know, yeah. sun sets at like, what, four o'clock now? So. Yeah, four four thirty around here, four fifteen. Yeah, it's kind of depressing. Actually. I know. I hate it. I hate it. We have a few minutes left. Yeah, we have a few <laughs> minutes left. Well, one is, uh, yeah. Okay, I bet. 
one of the things is that um, as the sun is setting uh, and it gets low, it, it, it shines on the, uh, the hills near my house and it makes a very pretty glow. Mm. So uh, at least right before it's set, there's at least a pretty, pretty time that I call golden moment. We gotta, put, we gotta cover those hills in solar panels. <laughs> You're missing out. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm, I'm I mean, sorry, I'm, I'm joking too much. I'm no, sorry. I know, that's okay. I, I remember reading somebody had written an essay and he was very proud of the fact that his, uh, where he used to grow tomatoes now had solar panels. And I said, no, no, oh, no. grow the tomatoes, man. <laughs> yeah. you know, growing the tomatoes is a lot better for the environment and, 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 and you don't have to transport them far, you can eat them. <laughs> Yeah. That's that's this wonderful irony of the environmental movement that wants to pollute the environment with all kinds of renewable things, renew like wind and solar, uh, just cluttering up the entire landscape. It's just insane to me. But um, I think, and maybe this is what you were kind of getting at before, and stop me if I'm skip, skipping ahead, but I think a lot of people have fear about nuclear and I know even I did you know about a year or so ago I didn't know much about nuclear I knew a few people were thought very positive positively about it um but I had sort of I'd watched that Chernobyl documentary and you know you hear the horror stories my friend was actually in Japan when Fukushima happened and um you know it was terrifying for him and I don't think because he was afraid of it was more just that there wasn't good communication about evacuating people, but, um, you know, it is, it's scary, but it's also, you kind of, I mean, I guess you kind of have to think about it like planes, uh, planes are way more efficient than driving a car. And they're a lot, they're a lot less, uh, you're a lot less likely to die in a plane crash than a car accident, but much more people are, it seems like, uh, more irrationally afraid of, plane crashes and they are of car crashes. I think the feeling is that this is some a plane crash. In a plane, you don't have control. I mean, they're mm. doing it, you're just in it. And while in the car, you have the illusion of control. Right. You don't have control because when you get right down to it, I mean, some of the most horrific car crashes around here have been because some idiot, you know, <laughs> just kind of cross the median into the other side and wipe people out. Yeah. I mean, and I don't have control over that. And, and, and I imagine I'm driving the car, I'm in control. Uh, and while I'm in a plane, I'm in danger. Uh, right. And um, there's more variables in, a, in when everyone is driving their own individual vehicle and when everyone has their own individual hookup to the grid, you know, when it's less centralized it seems like that's kind of the theme right is it it's the precarity of it and the decentralization of it which amplifies the possibility of things to go wrong right yeah it it certainly does it certainly does oh so so you were saying about so we were talking about baseload and we were saying that um people like to downplay baseload yes um, when they're making anti-nuclear arguments and that's probably the space where like I mean, solar people, solar advocates, especially, um, for example, the people that led the campaign against Vermont Yankee in, in Vermont, uh, they went on to found the Sun Common Solar Company, which yes. it was in Vermont and now it's also in New York state. They're very big uh, where we are. Um, so I think, so, I mean, wh- wh- what would you say like about that dynamic where 
people who are like have a very clear incentive um, about solar energy to like downplay baseload. Like what, what's the danger of that, I guess? Like what's, what's the harm or am I just over-exaggerating? No, no, the danger of it is that basically solar could be good if it was managed right. And, and, and what I mean by that is that it would be like, you have your baseload plants that run all the time and you have solar, which solar and gas for load following, you know, that's the, the, the difference between 10 and 16 and back down to 10, okay? But what happens is that the, the, the proliferation of solar is not being controlled particularly. And so there's lots and lots of solar. And so during the time when solar is the most, it, 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 it begins to be like, now we don't need 10 anymore. We need eight. We need whatever. So we've got to cut off those nuclear plants because they're still trying to make 10 gigawatts and we don't need to tend because we have solar for the next hour and a half mm, yeah you know and uh and so that they begin saying what we need is flexible plants flexible plants because flexible plants uh will will be able to 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 make up for the fact the solar comes and goes and they'll be flexible and they won't be like nuclear plants that keep pumping things out all the time. And, and what are the flexible plants that gas fired? I mean, when somebody was talking to me years ago and I said, you understand that solar is a stalking horse for natural gas. It's, it's the Trojan horse that, that, that helps the grid move to natural gas because as, as solar will, will you get enough solar and it will be, make it difficult to run a baseload plant but uh, then you'll have to back it up with a flexible plant, which is uh, a gas plant. Yeah. And what would you say to someone that says, okay, well, instead of, uh, I, I agree, I don't like natural gas either. That's why we should have batteries. What would you say to that person? You first. <laughs> <laughs> I, go ahead, put in solar and disconnect from the grid and buy enough batteries to make it happen. Well, I don't mean on a personal level, but I mean, people that say on the grid, like, oh, instead of building a, a peaker plant, let's build a, a battery installation, like a, a large, you know, for the grid. Well, yes, of course they say that. But the thing is that they are under the impression that on the grid, the economics are somehow wildly different for that battery. And they're not. I mean, in other words, uh, a, an installation of battery on the grid is not like one tenth of the price of the batteries you were put to back up your house. Yeah. Per per per, per unit, it isn't. It, I mean, it's certainly there's some uh, scale, uh, but but the cost of the battery is is all about the materials in it, or mostly mm -hmm. about the materials in it, and uh, so. Um, if, if I make something that has a lot of uh, fabrication to it and stuff like that, then I can hope to get the cost down by making a lot of them and making them repeatedly. But if, 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 the, if the, the cost of something is, uh, um, uh, you know, the materials, um, that will do very well. I mean, I, I've never heard anybody saying, well, maybe I just haven't looked at it, buy wedding rings here. Because we we make so many wedding rings that they're a lot cheaper. Mm. Oh, and they're gold. That's a that's a really good analogy, right? Because <laughs> it's they're basically the material. Yeah. They're not. I mean, I guess there's a little bit of. Oh, of course, there's a manipulating bit. it, but if they basically are just 
So if I were, so the raw material, a, there's a 20, I think there's like a 20 megawatt uh, battery plant or maybe even less than that. Maybe it's, I'm not sure exactly what the numbers are, but there's a plant that's being built like a couple of miles away. That's bad. That instead of building a peaker plant, um, they're building a battery plant. So it's pretty much, they, this isn't, oh, I'm sorry. Maybe it's not 20, but. It, well, it probably is because as far as I know, the biggest uh, battery plant in the world is like 150 megawatts. I okay. think that's in Australia. So if you have- Yeah, it's 20, local, 20 megawatts. Yeah, 20 megawatts. Um, you know- So uh, I was just gonna say, so it's basically just like, they're just piling in a bunch of Duracells for, that they bought at Target. Hmm. You know, it's like the same materials. I mean, obviously it's a different configuration, but it, it really is just like straight up, you know, battery like batteries yeah it well it's it's probably lithium batteries yeah can i ask a stupid question about batteries too is that like i may or may not be able to answer <laughs> i mean but well so when i think about batteries i just think about like everyone complaining about their like phone batteries dying like within a few years like don't bat batteries like run out of juice very yeah, it they, almost seems like very quickly but <laughs> what, what happens is that uh, this is not my main area of expertise, but batteries, as you charge and discharge them and charge and discharge them, they became, they become somewhat less capable of holding charge or taking right. charge. Uh, and, uh, and so after a while, you have to replace them, even the rechargeable ones right. don't last forever. And so, yes, a 20 megawatt battery will last but then it it depends on how often you use it and uh and how i, I don't expect it would last forever uh, not forever but what i'm trying to say is it might have a, a 10 year life this is a, life, really, a shorter lifespan yeah yeah i'm not yeah. I, I i really shouldn't say anything about this because i don't know what the lifespan of a tesla battery is but yeah. i wouldn't expect it to be the same as a nuclear plant which has a 40-year initial uh license and 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 can be easily renewed for 20 years yeah okay and and the thing is that like 40 years time gives us a lot of bandwidth to come up with new technologies too that are even more efficient rather than a you know a 10-year lifespan i batteries just seem kind of wasteful to me i i don't know obviously i don't know about batteries they are I mean, let's face it, if you have this 20 megawatt battery, it can probably uh, store, um, oh, I don't know, 25 megawatt hours of, of energy. I mean, that's very little. I, I, I mean, it, it is not, um, Vermont Yankee was a standalone plant. And, and so people said, well, it's too small. It's, the economics of it are terrible. It was 620 megawatts. There's something called black start. And, and that means if the grid is totally down, you have a plant that can start it up again. It, it, the plant doesn't need any outside electricity to start, it starts. And so uh, it can be started without outside electricity. So it used to be that the black start plants in New England were mostly uh, hydro plants because after all, the water's there and, mm -hmm. and you can start it with, maybe you might need a small diesel also, but it, you, you, you can start it. Um, 
And then I saw New England said, oh, these, these hydro plants, they're too small. It'll take too long to bring the grid up from starting with the hydro plants. Well, the hydro plants are like 20, 40, 80 megawatts. What I'm trying to say is that, that so the, the, I saw New England decided to switch to natural gas plants for Black Start uh, because the, the, they felt the grid would go up faster if you had a bigger plant that, that was pushing it forward. And, and that happened about, I don't know, eight years ago, 10 years ago. What I'm trying to say is 20 megawatts is half the size, less than half the size of the little power plant near my house, Wilder Dam, which has two 20 megawatt uh, turbines and a three megawatt turbine. And so when I hear that, and it can go for several hours a day, you know, I don't know how many hours. Uh, has, I think about a 30% capacity factor. So that would be like, what, a third of 24, eight, I don't know. So it could go quite a few hours in a day. You have a 20 megawatt battery that can go for an hour and a half. I mean, I'm right. sorry. Another question. Um is uh you know you and this is one of your suggested questions so i wanted to ask you about oh, this no. <laughs> uh well yeah you're prepared for it so it's good uh, <laughs> so for example in kingston we have um you know thanks thanks to our wonderful uh, benefactor peter buffett and the nova foundation we have a plan that's been wonderful and heavy air quotes there yeah. uh, <laughs> we have a plan to get kingston the city of kingston to 100 percent renewables by 2050 um <laughs> and most of it's predicated, uh, you know, I'm looking at the charts. Um, most of it's predicated on uh, New York's clean energy standard, which I think is going to, by, by 2050, New York State has to be at 70% renewables. And then to, to get the other 30%, um, they want to do a combination of um, rooftop solar, of community choice aggregation, um, municipal purchasing, and um, participation in community solar projects. So that's what that's what we're doing in Kingston, apparently. Um, but in your opinion, uh, can a uh, can the grid ever run on 100% renewables? Not really. Though people will say that you know you have to go through a lot of um, a lot of sort of uh, acrobatics to try and do that. Uh, I don't know how else to describe it. Um, for example, people will say, well, you know, we need um, peaking power and uh, we can use hydrogen. And what we're going to do is we're going to build a lot of wind turbines and the wind turbines will make, uh, will make electricity, which will make hydrogen, which we will then use for peaking power. So you've got, uh, this uh, complicated uh, situation where first you have to build the wind turbines, you have to build enough so you're not using it directly, you're, you're, or, or uh, right now people curtail wind when, when, when there's too much of it. So what you do is you don't curtail it, you, you, uh, you make hydrogen with it, then you have to store the hydrogen, which isn't always a trivial situation. And then you have to get the hydrogen unless you build uh, the hydrogen plant right next to the wind turbine, 
you've got to get the hydrogen over to the wind turbine, to the uh, plant, which is going to burn it and, and, and like it was a gas fired plant and make electricity. Yeah. So you, you, you get people who, who say, well, we can do it. Don't you understand? You can build more wind turbines. You can use them to, uh, to make hydrogen. You can transport hydrogen and you can burn hydrogen in, in, in equivalent of a gas turbine. It's all going to work. You're losing something at every step in that. You understand, you, you know, every time you're transforming energy, you're losing something. I remember, uh, when I was uh, visiting uh, Wilder Dam, and uh, it gets very cold here, and uh, and 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 we were visiting Wilder Dam, and I realized that uh, when I walked into the turbine house, the room with the turbines, it was warmer than outside, and of course it is because even very efficient hydro loses some energy, and what does it lose it as? It loses it as heat. So the thing is that, you know, if you're going to say, oh, we're going to have the wind turbines and then the wind turbines will make the um, electricity, which will then make the hydrogen, which will then make the electricity, you know, you're going to have to have a lot of wind turbines to, to deal with all those losses. At least that's my impression of it all. And the thing is, this keeps changing. Every time I look around, they've got something new for so for at first um there was a, a lot of idea that there would be a thermal storage you would store heat and then you would somehow uh um uh, use this heat to, to turn turbines and then you would make electricity well storing heat isn't so easy if if you've ever you know like had a swimming pool or a hot tub, you know, it's always losing heat. You've got a, you know, a thermoses were a great invention, but a thermoses the size of a, uh, well, anyway, what I'm trying to say is storing heat to make electricity didn't strike me as a great idea. And people don't talk about it that much anymore. Yeah. Then there was this idea, and it was really a big embarrassment and a little bit of a scandal, but the Stanford professor who was very much, who can do everything with wind and wind and water and solar and 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 he said oh we're going to get all this energy from dams so someone said well you know that's like uh, 15 times the energy that we get from dams now or 10 times and he said well we'll put in more turbines mm, yeah. and i'm like uh and someone said you didn't say we're going to put in more turbines and he, he said well it's it's a uh, it was a hypothesis, not a, I mean, it was just one of these things where you're, you're scratching your head trying yeah. to figure out what was he talking about. But you, yeah. know, you can't just put in 10 times the number of turbines in a dam. Right. Or, yeah, and you, you mentioned wind power, too, where it's like, well, we just have to build more wind turbines. But what people don't realize is that there's, you know, there's land use and there's uh, people in towns that maybe don't want a giant field of solar panels or don't want wind turbines or are concerned about water quality or concerned about the fish or whatever. I mean, it's really hard to imagine having that much political power that you think you can just build, you know, hundreds of square miles of renewable, intermittent renewable plants. And, that, and that's the only way that you're going to get to this goal. It's just, uh, it doesn't seem politically possible to me. Well, it isn't politically possible. And I think that I'm, I'm sorry to say that it is likely to be a factor dividing the country. 
And the reason for that is that like, where are you putting the wind turbines? Are you putting them in Manhattan? No, yeah. putting them out in the countryside. Yeah. And uh, where are you going to put, uh, where are all the power lines going to go that are connect these wind turbines to the load? They're going to run through the countryside. And uh, areas of comparatively low population becoming energy fiefdoms of the cities. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it's different from uh, if you're a farmer and you sell your produce to the city, uh, farmers are looking for their markets, okay? But it's not the farmers looking for the wind turbine markets. It's it's wind developers, uh, and uh, so let's let's look at closing Indian Point. The area around Indian Point is going to suffer greatly, just like Vermont Yankee area did. There won't be taxes for the schools. There won't be uh, jobs. There won't be luncheon places for the workers. There won't be. When I was in looking into this, I discovered all sorts of things that don't even get into the, into the official uh, listings. For example, during uh, power outages, a lot of the workers have informal relationships with people in the town, and they rent a spare room for during the power outage. And they come back to this spare room, you know, maybe over there, or maybe if they retire, they suggest their friend go. And, 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 and the, so there are these people who are getting a little extra money every um, every eighteen months. So for for about a month, it's great. You know, they're they're a retired a widow or a, a retired couple, and 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 the same guys come back. You know, and they're they're hardworking. They're they're, they're working twelve hour days at the plant. They're they're friendly. Yeah. Or women too. <laughs> they come. There are uh, there are new Brodies of both sexes. And uh, I guess what I'm saying is that there are all these things that won't be there because of Indian Point isn't going to be there. So the country in that area is going to suffer, but the, they'll be putting up with wind turbines and wind turbine noise and, and transmission lines, most of which add almost nothing to the number of people employed. Hmm. A wind turbine, wind turbine farm, I don't know how many people, maybe 10, 15 people at the most, a power plant, coal or, or nuclear power plants, employs hundreds of people on the different shifts, you know. I mean, there's yeah. hundreds and hundreds of people. Those are union jobs, too. And it's union jobs, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I always think about, like, you know, you, you go to Home Depot or the farmer's market or something, and there's always that table there where it's, like, some solar company installer. And, you know, the person at the table is always, like, a basically, like, a half gig worker, half salesperson. And that's the job that's being created by like a solar panel thing. It's like very, you know, it's intermittent, intermittent jobs, just like the, the energy created is intermittent. Well, and now I'm seeing, uh, I've, I've, I've been researching this because they're really pushing this climate action plan in Kingston. And I've been, I've been doing research and sitting on all these Zoom calls. That's the, I guess the benefit now is that everything gets recorded. You don't have to actually go to the meetings when they're happening in real time, but you can sit through them. And uh, noticing that some of these activists who are pushing for solar, you know, that now work for like Scenic Hudson or, you know, some of these NGOs were previously salespeople for, uh, you know, like Suncommon or the sol whatever solar company. So it's, it's kind of like wild to me that this is just so out in the open that it's just, it's, it's a big sales uh, push 
Uh, and I, I see constantly, I see the Tesla battery ads in my, uh, in my Facebook timeline on, it says when the grid goes down, you know, you'll have your Tesla battery and it's just, pre it's preying upon people's fear of climate change, but at the same time, pushing us to be more dependent on the weather. It's just such an upside down um, situation we're in now where it's like, you know, you talk about all the benefits of nuclear and nuclear is not perfect. Nothing's perfect, but it's like as close to perfect, I think, as we can get right now, why wouldn't we want to push forward like the best possible option for, you know, society? I think we should be doing that, of course. And uh, I, 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 I think, though, that when you get right down to it, there are more opportunities for making money for some groups with the solar things. I mean, you know, it, it just, the prices, uh, the price of electricity will go up because having a solar plant does not mean you don't need a different plant because the sun always isn't shining. And if the different plant is a huge number of Tesla batteries, which I don't think can actually work for uh, an overcast day in winter, but, but there's gonna be something there. And you, you understand that when you build a grid usually, you want to build it with maybe 20% more capacity than you think the grid would need at maximum usage because power plants go offline or power plants have maintenance problems or you know whatever. So you want to build it at 20% more. If you're building renewables, you're building it 100% more or more than that. If you're building renewables and backing them up with traditional power plants, it's 100% more. If you're backing them up with other renewables, the sky's the limit. Because you can't guarantee that when the sun isn't shining, the wind will be blowing. You can't guarantee that if you've got a bunch of Tesla batteries that'll last your grid for an hour and a half, that that's all you'll need. And right now, there aren't even enough Tesla batteries to last a grid an hour and a half. 20 megawatts. I mean, I'm not, I don't mean to be too scornful, but I mean, we're 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 looking. I, I, you you can go over to 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 our little dam on the Connecticut and see two twenty megawatt hydro plants that each can run turbines each can run for about eight hours. Yeah. And nobody's like, oh, what a resource this dam is, you know. I don't. I I get I get kind of discouraged because when you get right down to it, arithmetic is arithmetic. And, and, and I don't know if you've ever read, it's, you can download it. It's called uh, Sustainable Energy Without the Hot Air by David McKay. And uh, it's really a worthwhile uh, thing. You can download different chapters. And what he did is he's a, he's a professor from, uh, he's passed away, but he's a, a professor from um, Oxford. And he was a climate advisor for uh, uh, one of the, uh, uh, English prime ministers, I believe. And uh, he basically uh, looked at things. And he says, okay, let's assume we captured every drop of water that falls on the highlands of England and the highlands of England were a certain level. And then we, we sent it all through turbines on its way to the sea. How much energy would we make? And 
what if we captured all the sun, you know? And what if we connected up to the Sahara somehow? And he said, and you remember, we have to be careful that we're not Englishmen uh, exploiting uh, that area of the world anymore <laughs> yeah, right. because they're not always happy with Englishmen exploiting that area of the world. If they have solar, maybe they want to use it themselves. Right. right. Also, I mean, I mean, this happened at COP26 that uh, advocates from Africa are saying like, you know, we, we're not even at a level of production yet where we can transition to renewables. We need coal. We need to burn coal to build up our countries to get a standard of living or we can even consider renewables. And they're right. Yeah. They're absolutely right. I mean, yeah. now, if we can begin to build nuclear plants that are price compatible with coal, and there are various groups working on that, like Thorcon and, and, and so forth. Uh, I know the one of the founders of Thorcon, and they're planning to build nuclear plants in Korean shipyards. And then basically move them to an area where they're set up to kind of take the cans that were built from the shipyards into a power plant, sort of on shore, but also sort of available so that a crane can move it off again and take it back for processing. So anyway, they've got a really good idea there. And I think it's really mm -hmm. excellent. But um, until we have those things available for all over the world, people are going to burn coal. That's how England and France and America made their industrial revolutions. And uh, that's how Africa and Indonesia have been trying to make theirs. And India, oh my gosh, India burns immense amounts of coal. And, and one thing I, which was a surprise to me, but it was true, and I, it was hard for me to wrap my mind around it, but if you read the poetry of the uh, Industrial Revolution and you read the descriptions of children working in mines and, and children working in factories and all this stuff, you get the impression that, uh, I think it was Milton who described it as dark satanic mills. Uh, the Industrial Revolution uh, was a pretty bad thing for England. Actually, the population grew as life expectancies increased because more mm. people were earning enough money to eat. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I mean that, and that's uh, you know that's a refrain that I'm hearing increasingly is that at COP twenty six and all these other like environmental things, you know, we're, we're all talking about energy, but we're not talking about hunger, and we're yeah. not talking about heat. You know, being being comfortable in our homes, having enough heat or having enough air conditioning to to bear another winter or summer with you know more extreme weather um i wanted to ask you too like you know people the economics of power like people often talk about how this kind or that kind is cheaper to build or more expensive to build um how much of that is due to incentives and how much of that is due to actual costs and then how does that compare to the cost of once the thing is built, like the ongoing, the life cycle of, of the, uh, the form of production? Well, I think there are qu quite a few uh, studies of, 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 of life cycle costs, some of which are more uh, reliable than others. I mean, I've seen some really stunning rebuttals of Lazar Frere's 
way of calculating life cycle costs. But basically, you have to take into account how long the life cycle is. I mean, people are saying that wind turbines, for example, can last for 20, 25 years. Okay. Wind turbines get a production tax credit for the first 10 years they're in operation. Oddly enough, a lot of wind turbines are massively refurbished after 10 years and the, 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 the clock stopped, starts again on mm. their production tax credit. So it's actually, and from my point of view, there are people who are far more expert on this than I am, but from my point of view, it's hard to figure out how long wind turbines actually last. I mean, if the production tax credit didn't go away, maybe it would last 20 years. On the other hand, uh, putting machinery out in the weather is not generally good for machinery. I mean, in other words, uh, a power plant turbine is, is in a turbine hall. <laughs> and that's where it's supposed to be. <laughs> so that it will not be subject to a lot of temperature changes and so forth and so on. Now, that turbine hall, it, it, apparently, Texas is not really into turbine halls, but I, I can't just say, well, they're all in turbine halls, but they're not, if they're not in a turbine hall, they're not also in a marine environment in a high wind marine environment. Yeah. I mean, if you can think of the difference, if you can imagine two more extreme situations, turbine in a turbine hall and turbine out in the air in a marine environment, which is a particularly chosen to be a windy marine environment. Yeah. Birds are pooping on it, you know, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, and there's a lot of salt running around. There's no yeah. You can prevent corrosion only to some extent with coatings and materials choices. In many cases, speaking as someone who spent a lot of time trying to do this, in many cases, those choices slow corrosion. They don't stop it, but slow is all you can hope for. Uh, so if you tell me that you're putting it in a very corrosive environment, but you're using great materials, I'm going to say that could work for a while. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And the, and the reason why it matters is that it's that the, it's, there's a choice being made and this is being done, this, this is being done despite the evidence that nuclear would be a more reliable, long lasting energy source. People are saying, well, no, I'm going to, I want to build a wind turbine instead because right. yeah, they, they, that's better. And yeah, that, that uh, yeah, it's like a choice and a priority that's being placed on it. But you see, there's more uh, financial incentive for that wind turbine. Because you see, the nuclear plant in an RTO area is competing with a lot of plants that are subsidized. And so the price on the grid is being pushed down by the fact that these other plants are subsidized. You understand that wind turbines often bid into the grid at like less than one cent or, hmm. or, or, or minus one cent. In other words, I'll pay you a penny or two to take my kilowatt hour. Hmm. I'll pay you to do it. Now, you understand that somebody who's making something cannot compete with somebody who will pay the customer to take their product. Yeah. Yeah, that makes it unfeasible to run a baseload source of energy, right? Because right. 
there would be there would be times where it's just running and there's no, there's no one to even buy the energy, right? Yeah, there there can't be um, if you if you have people who are able to pay the grid operator to take their energy, then the price on the grid cannot support other kinds of plants. This this is starting to make sense. So I think I think I get it now that the more intermittent renewables you put on the grid, the more you're crowding out baseload sources of energy because it becomes economically unfeasible for them to keep running at peak times. And then you're guaranteeing that that load following plants are gonna be built, which tend to be natural gas in, in, in these times, right? Right. And they're, they're, not, they're not, strictly speaking, I see load following uh, a little differently. Uh, let, me, let me say that in France, the new, when I first read about the nuclear plants in France, I thought, oh, look at this. They have 70, 80% capacity factors. They can't be run very well. Ours are 90%. Well, the reason they have the lower capacity factors is they're load following. Mm. So they're, 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 some of them are running at, at base load and some of them are following load. The thing about load is in general, it, it, it's a lot of people making little decisions. So it's comparatively smooth. You know, in other words, not everybody turns on their toaster at 6 a.m. Toasters begin going on in the morning but at different times because different people are doing it. While intermittents go on and off sort of like all together now. The sun sets and everybody's, and all the gas plants are ramping up at the neck of the duck curve. You know, they just got to suddenly move fast because yeah. the sun is set and people are going inside and turning on the lights and all of a sudden the, the the solar's gone and you know so what you what or for example uh you know there's a, a, a the wind dies down suddenly and then it comes back suddenly so what you need for that is what they call fast response okay that's what you need a fast response plant for and that's a gas plant load following lots of different types of plants can load follow because load follow needs some fast response, but a lot of it is just like, oh, at four in the morning, there aren't a lot of toasters going or lights going on, but at eight in the morning, gosh, it's getting busy. Yeah. You know, we've got four hours to, to follow that up. You can imagine a future where uh, we'll get like a, a notification on our phone and it'll say the sun is shining, turn on your, if you have to vacuum, do it now. But you only have an hour or something. <laughs> oh like gosh! Well, there is. There's already stuff like that going on. Oh no! I mean, not quite that much, but uh, when it, when when you have intermittence and the grid becomes more fragile, which means that it takes less and less to cause a disruption. So in in California, they've had a lot of flex alerts. Don't use your get your electric stove don't have your air conditioner on don't have right don't have any of these things going on between 4 p.m and 9 p.m so the time that you're home and like making dinner and stuff exactly. <laughs> didn't didn't that happen in uh, new york too where they had like a um they were telling people down in new york city 
they're telling people to like turn off their AC or something or limit yeah, their, yeah. their yes. usage. Yeah. Yes. But that's, you see, the thing is that that is like, doesn't understand that people are people and, and right. really the grid is supposed to serve their ability. And I got an email from a, a friend in, in California saying, hey, don't judge me. I'm a single mother and I'm coming home from work and making dinner. Yeah. And that's yeah. what I have to do. Yeah. You know, I can't not use electricity from 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. for my kids. And the electric stove is supposed to, they, they push those on everyone because they're supposed to be good for the environment. Now look at it. Yeah. Yeah. The, well, they're not good for the environment. I mean, I have one. Okay. I'm not trying to like, oh, I have a little halo. <laughs> when you get right down to it, if you're running off natural gas, it takes three times as much natural gas to provide the heat that heats your burner than it does for you to just heat your burner directly with natural gas. So my question in all, in all this, you know, we've been talking a while and I, I, I don't want to keep you for too long, Meredith, but my question is like looking to the future and we don't, we don't want these things where we have to feel bad about using energy and whatnot. So especially locally, like for you in Vermont, your nuclear was shut down for us in here in New York, Indian point was shut down. So what, what is, what should we be? I know there let that like nationwide people are preventing the shutdown of nuclear, which is great, you know, but what do we do in places like Vermont and New York where our plants have been shut down? Is there like any way that these plants can be restarted? Um, what's the path moving forward for, for people like us? I'm sorry to say the path moving forward doesn't look good. And, mm -hmm. and, and the plants being restarted uh, is, is, is extremely, it, it's beyond unlikely. It would take, uh, if there was like, God forbid, something like World War II again, and people said, well, we've got to have huge industrial production, so start them again, they'd manage perhaps. But Vermont Yankee has been almost completely disassembled by now. Okay. I mean, and uh, yeah, it closed a long time ago, 2014, right? Yeah, 2014. So mm. it's been almost completely disassembled. And um, in general, uh, our regulatory system, uh, if you have a plant that is uh, operating, you have to pay a fair amount of money, and I don't know how much it is per megawatt or whatever, to the NRC. For, um, for supervising the safety of that plant. The NRC charges you for their safety inspectors coming out and inspecting it, which is, you know, isn't actually unreasonable. I mean, uh, if, if you had to have uh, some kind of inspection in your car, you'd expect to pay for it. But the thing is that, uh, of course, when as soon as a plant is uh, shut down, the first thing they're gonna do is surrender their operating license to the NRC so that they don't have to keep paying right. the NRC for the safety inspectors. Once they've surrendered their operating license, they're in decommissioning mode and they can use the decommissioning money that they had to store up. Every, every plant has a, a decommissioning fund that they have uh, paid into over the years. And um, so they can begin using that money. And so uh, a plant, uh, that isn't operating is definitely worth more when the license has been surrendered to the owner than it is when it's not operating and the license is still operating. You know, then they can't 
get their decommissioning money and they they have to keep paying for inspections right and uh so it's but you see once you surrender your operating license if you wanted to get it back let's say you just put the plant into some kind of mothball and you 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 surrendered your operating license, but you don't bother to decommission it. You put it in safe store or something. Well, then you say, I want the operating license back. I'm applying for it again. Well, the thing is that whatever rules you had uh, for the operating license back in the day when you got it, there's a whole new set of rules over at NRC. Mm. And it's sort of like, um, you know, uh, bringing an old house up to code. Right. I, I live in a house that was built in the 1890s. And I assure you that the central uh, uh, staircases, in a staircase for the first, to the first, uh, to the bedroom level in our house is not up to current code. I mean, it is steep. It right. is not it's the way they built staircases in the 1890s. So if somehow or other someone said you can't continue to live in this house unless you bring every part of it up to code. Yeah, you'd be screwed. I'd be screwed, right? <laughs> yeah. And similarly, even if the changes uh, that have been made in the NRC rules do not add a bit of safety, the idea of bringing an older plant up to NRC code for 50 years later It'd be screwed. So it's like it's like you said, it's virtually impossible to to restart these plants. So then, for people living in areas where plants have been shut down, do we then? I mean, what is our option? Do we embrace renewables? Like, <laughs> what do we? What do we fight for? You know, I know we 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 don't like renewables, but what do we fight for in our in scenario? In my opinion, we fight for a reliable grid, and 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 that would mean keeping the nuclear plants we still have, uh, not overbuilding renewables because they're intermittent. Uh, I, I hate to say this, keeping the coal plants mm. because they have uh, energy stored on site. And when you do use gas plants, have someone in charge who can say, gas plants in order to be used in this jurisdiction must have x amount of oil stored on site at the beginning of every winter mm -hmm. and you and you, they are allowed to charge for doing such you see what i'm saying you realize that in that one winter we were our our grid was 30 the new england grid was 30 percent oil fired mm -hmm. because the gas plants could not get gas or could not pay for it. Mm. And it was only our grid operator's foresight in requiring gas plants to store and paying for them to store oil on site that kept us together. And you see, the thing is, you could require this. I mean, it was required for a while. Then FERC shut it down. FERC said, I'm sorry, you're supposed to be fuel neutral. You're supposed to do everything through a market and an auction. And what are you doing? You're paying to keep oil on site at gas plants. Well, that isn't very good. It's only saving the grid. That's not what we're about. We're about being fair. I mean, I'm sorry. If they had been fair, we would have had some really ugly outages. Yeah, I mean, that's why I always keep coming back to with this stuff is that the amount of fossil fuels that are going to be burned is going to grow quite a bit because of, you know, the global south, Africa, South America, these countries are all developing. 
Um, it's expected that they're going to burn. I think like the increase in fossil fuels burn is going to be like four to five times more than what America burns, you know, completely every year. Um, so, so at some point it's like, all right, what time, what time are we going to balance, you know, a reduction, a reduction in our emissions with reliability of the grid because unreliability kills people and unreliability uh, creates price spikes, which leads to people deciding, am I going to heat my home or am I going to eat this, this week? You know, the people have to make these increasing, increasingly desperate decisions um, to make up for the, the instability of the grid, which is completely voluntary at this point. And this is based on like a small reduction in, in emissions, if you look at it certain ways. Yeah, no, I, 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 I think the reliability of the grid is the central issue. I mean, Aaron Penny said something to the effect, and I'm misquoting him perhaps, but there's no strong country without a strong grid. If you've got an intermittent grid, you've got a difficult life in the country. You've got yep. a country that can't be uh, a power, uh, uh, industrial powerhouse, uh, you know, uh, it, it, it just, it, it, you know, you, it might be a place that people don't even want to visit. I mean, uh, you know, they, they think, oh, well, the power goes out over all the time around here. Right. And, in Puerto Rico or something, yeah. Yeah, right. I, I guess the thing is, I think we should not be as concerned with our greenhouse gas emissions as we are with our grid stability. And so we should use all the low emitting sources for as long as we can, our, our, our hydro plants, our nuclear plants. And then we should use plants with oils, uh, with fuel stored on site as much as we can. And, and I mean, I didn't really, I really didn't think this way when I, when I began writing the book. When I began writing the book, I thought the way the grid is managed is just crazy. And I just don't, I, nobody even knows they're in an RTO area, so they're not gonna do anything about it because they don't even know what these auctions are or how they're rigged for the, uh, the power plants that have uh, um, uh, outside funding by production tax credit or whatever. So I, I didn't feel like, oh yeah, reliability, but I've come to the conclusion that that's it. That's what, what it takes. It takes reliability. And when you get reliability, then you can begin swapping out high emitting plants for low emitting plants. So that's but you got to do it in that order. You can't just decide to shut down all your, your, your plants, both the high emitting plants and the ones you just don't like, like nuclear. They're low emitting, but we don't like them. Yeah. You can't just shut all that down and hope that you're going to have a reliable grid because you won't. Yeah. Well, that, that I, hear, I, I hear the local activists referring to nuclear as a dirty mix, part of the dirty mix. And I, I, I jump on that immediately because it's, yes. it's a lie <laughs> yes. and it's a dangerous lie that's going to put us like you're saying in a very precarious situation. So um, yeah, it's, it's disheartening to hear that, like, there's nothing to be done about these plants that we lose, but yeah, you know, like we got to prevent, we got to prevent these plants from getting shut down as much as possible. And we hopefully also, we'll get new ones built in the future. Yes. And we also, I think have to prevent 
some kind of crazy dichotomy from happening where the rural areas of the country just get, just get, you know, you're going to have to put up with the wind turbines. You're going to have to put up with the transmission lines. Uh, that's just the way it is. Get used to it. Uh, and, 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 and all it does is it makes uh, some mostly urban people feel, you know, self-righteous because it doesn't really lower the uh, amount of greenhouse gases going on the grid. I, let me uh, encourage you to look at a, a, uh, a website called electricitymap.org. Have you ever looked at that? No. Uh, I really recommend you looking at it. What it is is that they have uh, put together uh, real-time data for different jurisdictions like Germany, Ontario, ISO New England, and it's the amount of greenhouse gases, I'm sorry, CO2 equivalent per kilowatt hour produced on the grid. Now, you have to go at the top. It says used versus produced. I like to look at push the produce button uh, to, see, to see what's really going on. But look at, look at France, look at Sweden, and look at Germany. Germany has invested Ooh. amazing amounts in renewables. Do they have a clean grid? Nope. Damn, so it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. But, but you know, the thing is, everybody listens to the propaganda of Germany as a leader in climate because, and if you go to Germany, oh, look at all the wind turbines. Look at all the solar panels. Of course they're doing great. No, they're not. They're shutting down their nuclear plants. They're still raising real villages. I mean, knocking them down and moving the, the graveyards because you can't just like dig up a graveyard to get at the lignite underneath it. So they have to move them. Mm. But I mean, it's absolutely appalling what's going on in Germany. And so what I'm trying to say is by building these wind turbines and solar panels, we're not even saving the world from uh, global warming. I mean, I don't think that I think if you've read like Schellenberger's recent book and stuff, uh, not freaking not San Francisco, but uh, Apocalypse, Apoca Never. Apocalypse Never, I think is yeah, the name it, of it. It's, yeah. about, it, it's a, a pretty good argument for the fact that the the global warming is 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 not an existential threat threat to humans. So if it isn't an existential threat, so let's not kill humans by denying them electricity. Let's use the power plants we have and replace the uh, the the uh, ones that are high emitting over time. And don't go down Germany's path of self righteousness about having installed renewables without ever bothering to notice the fact that they're still emitting immense amounts of carbon. It's that seems so logical, right? But that you're right. That's the propaganda is like, it's such a mountain right now. I know, <laughs> but um, I just want to say that uh, during uh, COP, I don't remember one, the one, the, the COP, 26 just ended. The COP that was in Munich, um, I had pro-nuclear friends who, who went there 
And they were being like shoved by anti-nuclear people and, 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 and really maltreated. And the, the policemen didn't, didn't help uh, when, when some anti-nuclear guy uh, tried to pull a camera out of a woman's hand. Uh, the police didn't protect her. Uh, and um, it was really quite a, a shocking thing. Now, at this COP26 thing that just finished, uh, the nuclear people were not allowed to uh, be in the group that was a clean electricity group. Uh, some blue zone, I don't really know how the heck they set those things up, uh, but they weren't allowed into the blue zone. But there were pro-nuclear protesters, pro-nuclear people all over the streets, having flash mobs, dancing, making up pro-nuclear songs. There were many of them were, 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 were young people, of course, especially the break dancers. <laughs> and, and, uh, I think that there is a different attitude now than there was a few years ago. At least I hope so. Um, though I, the one cynical person said, it's amazing what a rise in natural gas and coal prices can do for people's opinion of nuclear. <laughs> <laughs> well, it takes sometimes. So, well, that gives me a lot of hope. I like to hear that. I think the tide's turning. We're gonna, we're gonna win we're this win. battle. The people are gonna win. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> You've been listening to the Space Commune podcast. I'm Fox. I'm Alex. And today we've been talking to Meredith Angwin. Uh, Meredith, it's been such an extreme pleasure to talk to you. Um, we uh, love to hear about all of your research and knowledge. Um, where can people find your work? Where, what's the best place to find Meredith Engwin's work? Well, um, you can, I, I do everything I can to make myself easy to find. My uh, email address is Meredith Angwin, all one word, uh, at gmail.com. My Twitter handle is at Meredith Angwin. And I even have a website, um, MeredithAngwin.com. Uh, now, the thing about my website is I've been so busy with other things that I haven't been posting there a lot. But if you go to the website, there's a place where you can sign up for my newsletter. And I do send out newsletters. So, uh, uh, and, and there's some rather nice uh, uh, posts on my website. I mean, I'm not, the, the posts I have there are, 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 are good. I just feel like I've been, uh, I've been so busy with other things that I, I haven't been keeping my blog up to date. Well, you're a powerhouse of content and information. And I love um, running into people who just ask questions and just want to like put the information out there for other people to figure out. And i um, super appreciative of, of all that you've contributed, Meredith. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I really appreciate that. And I'm going to give a little tiny plug for my daughter, Julia Angwin, because uh, she, she is doing uh, amazing work in uh, how we're tracked over the internet. And uh, you can find her uh, all over the web also. So. Cool. Very cool. Good. Okay. All right. Well, that was great. And thanks again for sticking